Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and my guest today is Mr. Buster Odeholm, a Swedish producer who also happens to be the lead guitar player and producer for a band called Humanity's Last Breath, as well as the drummer for a band called Villartem. Based on his work with Humanity's Last Breath, he gained a lot of notoriety. Just He has this ability to make sounds that are just pulverizing. And that got the attention of acts such as Born of Osiris, Winds of Plague, Oceano, Sworn In, and many, many more. He's a very in-demand, up-and-coming producer. And his ability to take things that are just typically impossible, <laughs> not impossible, but, you know, close to impossible to get sounding clear and punchy. He just makes them sound massive, massive, and the clarity and the details all there, and it's really, really incredible stuff that he does, but not only are his skills impressive, but I think that he's got a very relatable story because he learned how to do this production stuff so that he could make his own music sound great. And how many of you out there can relate to that? How many of you out there can say, that's me? I know that that is me. That's the reason I got into production. I wanted to make my own band stuff sound great. That is one of the major pathways that modern producers use to get into production. And Buster is an example of someone who has made a career of it. So that sounds like you. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Here goes. We're in Florida right now. Um, we're in Orlando because you're here for Now the Mix, which is really, really awesome. And I just got word that the tap water, yeah. you can't drink that shit. Fuck no. <laughs> so I used to live here. We're, we're lucky because right now it doesn't really smell like eggs too bad. <laughs> okay. I, I the water. The water. Okay. So if at all... Sulfur, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of sulfur. We're very close to the water table here. Yeah. There's a lot of sulfur in it. And I uh, mean, at least you can't put a lighter and it like it burns like in Flint, Michigan or whatever. No, th that's a different story. I think that's just sewage. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's methane, like... Uh, yeah, that's toxic waste oh, great. in Flint. That's not toxic waste here. Okay. It's just uh, a natural occurrence that 
Um, oh, really? That I believe that there's just the water coming from the ground is very close to uh, man. Someone who knows the exact answer is going to tell me. But for instance, you can't have basements here oh. because if you just dig like uh, three feet or something, you're going to hit water. So oh. most people don't have basements, only like super rich people who, and it's a major operation it's because the water table is so high, there's a lot of shit in the water. Oh. Not poop, but just like oh. sulfur and yeah, things yeah, like sulfur, that. Yeah. So sometimes you'll be uh, t taking a shower and suddenly it just starts to smell like eggs and you come out smelling worse <laughs> than when you went. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like, do you want to <laughs> clean yourself in dirty water? No. No. <laughs> it's disgusting. <laughs> Call it an omelet bath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was horrible. It doesn't sound great. No, it wasn't great at all. And uh, certainly don't drink that shit. I won't. I won't. I haven't. So, but uh, I, I had to ask before. I might have tried if I didn't ask. Did they give you the free waters? Here, yeah. Yeah, I got Okay, it. good. Yeah. So at least it's survivable. Yeah, for sure. But that's not enough for like this whole trip. They only gave you two, right? Yeah. So I had to take the expensive... <laughs> Ration that out. Yeah, expensive Fiji water that I have to pay for, but uh, that's fine. I'll give you... I have a lot of water in my room. All right. uh, and you know what else what? we should do since we're here and together? We should uh, do a grocery order for you. We should, we should. Yeah, yeah. and then you can get all the water you want. Cool. See, we take care of people here. Yeah, at, uh, they do. Here at uh, URM. Nice hotel with a pool and uh, a gym and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean... I think there's nothing, I mean, there's a lot of things worse, but in our little realm of uh, privileged first world existence, there's nothing worse than going to a different country where you're jet lagged and you're under pressure to perform at your best and you're going to be watched by everybody. You mean like tour? Yes, just <laughs> like tour. And get to some place where they don't care about what condition you're in. And some people think that that's just acting like a rock star if you don't like it, but if you don't have like proper facilities, yeah. decent enough food, water, all those things, you're not gonna you're not gonna be comfortable. You're not gonna do That's as right. good of a job. I agree. I think when you're twenty one and touring, you kinda don't give a fuck. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I didn't tour I haven't I, toured much actually. I so. haven't I didn't tour when I was twenty one, so I don't oh, know. Okay. But you're you've toured a lot. Yeah. yeah. I started when I was twenty four though and I didn't give a fuck then. Oh, okay. I only started to give a fuck when I got closer to 30. Yeah. That's like the, the age when things change. I feel like I've always been, been like a bit skeptical about touring and kind of like, it's good. This, is, this is, how is this fun? How is this something I like to it's, do? That's a good thing to be skeptical about. What was it you were skeptical of? I mean, going to other countries that are way, I mean, I'm not, wanna, I don't want to sound like an asshole here, but. I'm kind of used to Sweden, and Sweden is great. And uh, when certain things aren't at the same level, it can be hard, I think. But uh, I'm probably the most, that's probably the most privileged thing I've ever it's said in privileged. my life. But at the same time, I have a free will, and I don't have to tour if I don't want to. It's true. Well, look, the thing is, uh, you're right about everything you just said. <laughs> the thing about touring is until you get big, you have to basically accept living really shitty yeah like even if you're in a bus it's really shitty the thing it it's interesting to me is bands 
that are first starting, they dream about the bus. Yeah. Like, it's the biggest deal on earth. They see bands in a bus and it's like, fuck, I want that someday. But yeah. it's not that much better. It's, it's like really a disease not. incubator or whatever. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. There's a lot of disadvantages to it also. Like, you can't go anywhere. You yeah. get to the venue at, like, seven in the morning, you're stuck. Yeah. Only the biggest bands have a bus and a hotel. Yeah. Because they're so fucking expensive that no smaller bands that can afford a bus are going to afford a bus and a hotel. For sure. So you're showering even less. Yeah. Like, even less than on a van tour in a bus tour. So only bands that make the bus shit work are, like, They gotta be like Opeth level and higher. Yeah. You know, when you're that level and higher, okay, then then they've got, and I'm just using them as an example because yeah. one of them might be listening and be like, we didn't get hotels on this and that tour. But, uh, you know, you have, I'm just saying you have to be like of significant stature yeah. to where you can do buses and hotels. So I don't know, man, the being on a bus isn't that cool. No, I mean I've I've never toured on a bus. I've been on a bus, but like if, like a tour bus, but I haven't toured on a bus like that. I've done a lot of flying gigs, mm -hmm. which is the worst. Like because if you you're playing the same day you're flying, you're playing essentially without sleep and That's all that stuff. That's discombobulating. Yeah, and you uh, the day after you go uh, also you wake up early to fly back and like flights and stuff like that is not something I like either. So it's privileged uh, a way of thinking, but I mean, I don't have to do it if, if I don't want to. So are you afraid of flying or you just not like it? I don't like it because I'm six four. That's right, that's right. So I don't fit and I can't sleep. And uh, I mean, the other guys in the band are, are afraid of it and uh, that's a problem as well, but uh, I'm fine with it. Man, even first class seats aren't going to be comfortable for you. They're not. I mean, a lot more at least, but. Uh, but in Europe, man, the first class in Europe is not like first class in the US. First class in Europe is just coach seats. And what they do is they block off the one in the middle. Oh. So it's the same, it's like the same setup. They're no different. It's just no one sits in the middle seat. That's weird. Why would you want that for like twice the price or more? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's I, what you want is to be able to lay down. That's probably yes. the thing, the biggest thing if you're gonna pay for first first class, right? Yeah, but they only have that on super long flights, yeah. and uh, that's way expensive. Yeah, that's like Casey Neistat flight. Yeah. Well, okay. So that comes in different different levels. Like so, the Casey Neistat stuff, where it's like. Where he'll be like, I took a twenty thousand dollar plane yeah, ride. Emirates. Yeah, so that's like first class. Uh, I guess first class is actually kind of rare. Yeah. Um, not all airlines have that. I guess what we're actually talking about is more like business. Oh yeah. Or or like short range first, which is they're just multiple different categories. Do you get that? Do you get to do business flight? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. Right. I don't pay for it though. No. Like I'm not gonna, dude. It's like ten thousand dollars. <sighs> Fuck no. That's crazy. I have really good status with my airline. Yeah, I'm I can imagine. Loyal, so I'll get upgraded. And the one thing that I will pay for is um, the premium economy seats for me. But then that makes the upgrade a lot easier. But yeah. if I've got a bed on an international flight, that shit ain't paid for. <laughs> <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> Seriously, I've looked at some of those flights. It's like $13,000 round trip. It's like, 
really? Yeah. Hell no. It's crazy. For one night? Well, yeah. two nights, because you got to fly It's back. probably worth it for someone who, who's a lot richer. I mean, that's nothing for them. Yes, if it's nothing for them, cool. Yeah. And then also, the reason it's called business class is because they're sending executives. Yeah. And the whole idea is that the executive sleeps on the flight so that they can arrive in the morning and go do business. Yeah. And when you're talking about major companies worth hundreds of millions of dollars where every day is huge amounts of money, yeah. what's the big deal? Yeah. I mean, I, I get it. We're it, not We're not in that category. No, we're not. <laughs> we're fucking metal dudes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that for you, with your size, regular first class wouldn't even make a difference yeah. to you too much. Yeah. I mean, I, I have asked on really long flights to if, if I can lay down mm-hmm. and maybe stretch, but they're super picky about that. But the flight here, the, the the plane was so huge, I got to do it um, because there was room and I just did it, I don't give a fuck. So I really need to stretch my back sometimes to be able to sit down for that long, you know? Man, if I had known about that, I would have tried to get you seats in a, that were, there are certain seats that- Oh, the, with the, what's it called, uh, emergency exit yes. thing, yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can change your seat on the way back to that. That would be great. I'll see what I can do. That's um, cool. So the other guys in your flight are in your bands are afraid of flying. Yeah, yeah, we have a bit of problems with that. I'm not gonna name any names, but no. uh, we have uh, we have some issues with that. And uh, sometimes it's fine. Sometimes it's not fine. So. I feel bad for them because I used to have that. Yeah. Um, I used to have that real bad to where like I wouldn't go on family vacations, but I got over it. But you kind of have to, I mean, I feel it as well, but you just, you just kind of have to ignore it. You kind of just have to not think about that you're in a huge metal tube in the sky. Yeah. Same with cars. Like, you're going, yeah. so, like, when I learned to drive, <laughs> I was scared. I was so scared well, because you're feeling thing. it. You're feeling you the weight. You should be scared. <laughs> you're feeling the weight, you're feel, feeling the speed, and you're feeling the danger, but then you just kind of get used to it and just forget about it, which kind of is a bad thing because you're not really realizing what you're operating. I mean, do you ever think about the fact that when you're going on the highway, at whatever kilometers per hour, yeah. I don't know what, so like- 110 is okay, standard? So, yeah, something that's probably around 60 or 70 miles per yeah. hour. And all that's separating you and the car next to you is just like one meter or, yeah. some, or less. Yeah. So that's three feet for you dumb Americans. <laughs> um, but that's, that's craziness. Yeah, it that's, is, it is. That's like two steps or one little move away from chaos. If we're alive in a uh, hundred years, we'll, the people there will probably look back at that and, and think like, that's crazy, how could they do that? Well, it's maybe, like, have you ever seen those videos of building practices in some third world countries where these really, Man, oh, yeah. unfortunate the, dudes yeah. will just be on the outsides of buildings. Like like the with, guys from Philippines that are working in the Emirates, Arab Emirates, and they have no safety and yeah. barely any salary and they sleep on the floor. And that stuff. level of danger. Yeah. I wonder if people, if us 200 years from now, will be looking at how we used to drive now and be like, God, they were fucking reckless. Yeah. Probably. Probably. With all the stuff, like, I mean, the food, the way we treat food and meat mm-hmm. and all that. And uh, the safety regulations for buildings and and how we drive, everything is very dangerous. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I wanted to stop touring was I remember on one of my last tours sitting in the U.S. We were in a van for this and 
I was at the very back, not driving, just laying there, and we were just going through like a cornfield. Yeah. And I was just thinking, like, this is really fucking dangerous. Yeah. If we crash, like, I'm not strapped into anything. Who the hell knows what could happen? Like, yeah. this is not worth it. Like, we're going to be getting paid $250 for this gig. Like, Risky, my, Risking your life. Yeah. That's how I started. I couldn't stop thinking that way. Like, I'm risking my life for what? It's pretty logical to think like that. I mean, uh, I've heard stories from Viljarda before I was in the band. They toured in uh, Russia, and mm -hmm. the driver was um, watching a movie while he was driving. <laughs> and, and, I mean, they just forced themselves to fall asleep and just hope that they were alive when they woke up, you know? If they woke up. If they woke up, yeah. <laughs> hope that they were alive when they woke up. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, I just had to, that it made me think for a yeah. second. There was this one. Woke up wo dead and wo awake? I don't know how that works. It doesn't. No. Because <laughs> you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, once I was on this tour, it was Joffrey Cowboy on Earth by Icon in Europe. And on the first night, we were playing in England. And we had two buses. And I remember going to the bar after the show, and the two bus drivers were at the bar having drinks. That's they were going to drive us crazy. in two hours. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also an American thing that I, I mean. That was in England. Yeah, but I've met like American Americans that are like uh, going to dinner with me and having three beers and then just driving home. That is, that is uh, in Sweden, you'll get just. That's not okay. The, but you have a higher threshold for when you're allowed to drive than in Sweden, uh, I think. In some places, but okay. it's one of those things that kind of like smoking. You know, there was a time where you could do it anywhere, and now it's pretty much verboten yeah. anywhere you go. Like, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to be allowed to smoke inside a restaurant. If you light a cigarette in certain places, people are going to look at you like, like, what the fuck are you doing? And I, I personally think that's good. No, I think it's great. But drinking and driving, as crazy as this is going to sound, there was a time period where people just did it. Yeah. And it was not that it was legal, but it was like more societally acceptable. And yeah. people who are maybe below the age of 35 or 30 in the U.S., you're not going to understand what I'm talking about because... You probably didn't live through it because it was only in the past few years has it become like a big societal taboo. Like, I know that people look at drinking and driving now like, fuck that motherfucker. Yeah. Like, if they know someone who does it because we've got Uber now. So whatever excuse, there was no excuse. But, and like, I know someone who killed somebody that way. Yeah. Uh, so, like... I've seen the first... Vince Neil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I know someone who was like a friend of mine yeah. who, uh, she was a really good girl about 10 years ago. She drove home drunk from a bar and hit a pedestrian and killed him. And uh, is just now getting out of prison. Yeah. So like, I've seen, I've seen it and I know that in society, people are, they don't look kindly on drinking and driving anymore. Just because you have fucking Uber, you yeah. really, like, you, whatever fake excuse you had before that a lot of people were just like, oh, it's just two miles or yeah. just whatever. Now, there's no excuse whatsoever. If we're speaking about Sweden and uh, America. I mean, imagine all the the smaller countries that are like, that are not as state controlled or whatever, like Bolivia or whatever. I, I bet all of those drivers are drunk. Who knows? <laughs> or Russia or whatever. I would not want to fuck with their police though. No, but yeah, yeah. But like if you go on tour, you know, uh, you're yeah. all of a sudden on a highway with a bunch of drunk people driving. 
Most could be likely. your driver. Yeah, could be your driver. <laughs> so, just so you know, let me just say that if your band members want to ever get over their fear of flying, there's ways to do it. Because I did it. Medication or? <laughs> no. So I did take medication, but the medication doesn't solve the fear. No. It just solves your symptoms. Yeah. No, I actually solve the fear. I can fly without medication now. The only time I take medication on a flight is if I want to sleep. Like, is it like a meditation or? It's. A combination of things. It's it involves a lot of learning, yeah. a learning about aviation. Oh, really? Um, because once you start to understand it, it's hard to be so afraid of it. Yeah. Because a lot of the a lot of the fear I've noticed comes from people, they're they're having an emotional reaction to something that's super unnatural. Yeah. And they think they're in huge danger, which is understandable because. Yeah. It feels that way. But like you can say, like the car comparison as well. Like you're not afraid of. A car, like being in a car, but you're afraid in an airplane, which kind of doesn't make sense. It's not rational. That's why. So they have. There's an emotional component. You can use that car analogy. People used to use that on me. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. I'm terrified of being on an airplane. I'm yeah. not terrified of being in a car. I realize that the car is more dangerous. But the thing is, once I started to learn about flying, like really learn about it, like I started studying as if I wanted to learn how to do it. And now okay. I do want to learn how to do it. And then I really started reading on statistics and just knowledge changes things. Yeah. Now I know just how safe it really is. Yeah. Safe as fuck. Yeah. Way safer. And now I'm afraid in Several a car. Safer than walking in a city. <laughs> yeah. Dude, being on a plane is seriously one of the safest things you can do. Yeah. And... It seems counterintuitive because you're in a tube flying really fast, yeah. really high. But there's just so much that goes into the safety, yeah. and it, it's and that safety is built on blood, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. Yeah, of course, of course. Every and like all the like the the flight like the accidents you hear of is scaring everyone. Uh, I mean, there was, like, last year, wasn't there a lot of, yeah, uh, with the, the same seven, model of The 737 plane? MAX. Yeah. The MAX 3, I believe, or MAX 9. But, yeah, the so what happened with that was that Boeing released... So the 737, I'm, I won't talk about this too much because I'm going to bore a bunch <laughs> of you. But basically, there's a new, a new version of the airplane yeah. that the engines were brought forward, which shifted the the weight yeah. forward which is different and so there's a software that was created to uh to compensate for it however they didn't train the pilots about this software oh. the pilots didn't even know in some cases that the software was there so what the software would do is if it felt the plane pitching in a certain direction weird because yeah. of the weight, it would automatically correct. And they corrected as well. Yeah, but they didn't know that it was doing yeah, that. Okay. So the plane is correcting it like it's supposed to, but the pilots think there's something wrong. Yeah. So they start fighting the plane. Yeah. Then the plane fights back harder and you get chaos. Yeah. So that's what happened both times because they didn't train the pilots. But now, obviously, that's not going to ever happen again. Do we know what happened with the Malaysia one? Uh, no. That was just... Well, the first one That's the just disappeared, one. right? Well, there were two. Okay. There was one that was shut down, shot down by Russian, a Russian oh. missile. Yeah, Russian separatists, really just, you know, Russian forces that aren't... Let's get into Russia. No, I'm yeah. just joking. <laughs> Russian forces that aren't technically Russian but are, okay. shot it down. But then the one that disappeared, 
The theory is that they had some sort of uh, depressurization okay. and everybody went to sleep. And it just flew and flew and flew and then ran out of gas and crashed. Wow. People thought that it was terrorism at first, but now a lot of people are thinking based on all the data that really what happened was something failed, like also for the pilots. So the pilots passed out. Everybody passed out, so it was like a ghost ship. Oh, shit. Yeah. And just kept going. Yeah. But it's weird that they... Did they find the plane, or...? They found pieces of it. Okay. Washed up on shore, like, oh. all the way in Africa and stuff. Oh, That's how they know. It's because, like, one piece washed up in Madagascar That's and had, crazy. like, a serial number. Yeah. Yeah, they have not found that plane. <laughs> That's nuts. It is nuts. Yeah. But let's talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. But about touring, about touring. So it doesn't sound to me like you're big on travel. I'm not. Is it because you'd rather be in the studio? A lot of it is. Uh, mm -hmm. I get really bored. I get also, I mean, if I'm not mixing in like a week or two, I get like, uh, what's it called when you don't get your drugs? Like you get the withdrawal, withdrawal yeah, kind yeah. of like that. Yeah, I just love, really love what I'm doing and I'm, I don't want to leave. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd rather do what I'm doing, you know. Well, you know, that's kind of what P Will Putney does. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He do he doesn't want to tour with End and stuff like that, and uh, his other band, right? Fit for an autopsy. Yeah, fit for autopsy. Yeah. People listening, correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe he plays shows with them here and there. Yeah. I don't know. I've never seen pictures of that. Yeah. At least not recently. I don't think he tours with them at all. I'm. 99.9999999999999907 nice. <laughs> just we go for accuracy man. yeah for sure <laughs> it's a very accuracy oriented audience yeah yeah i'm pretty sure that that's what he does i have a similar situation going on right now actually because i have a band from stockholm that i'm producing and writing for and I'm going to be in the music videos and stuff like that as a drummer, but uh, as far as touring, they're they're getting like booking agents and all that and labels, huge labels and stuff, mm -hmm. which is really cool that everyone's interested in the music we're doing. But I've said from the start, like I don't want to, I don't want to tour. I don't want to, especially not a new band, just touring like that. They they really want to tour like a lot. So I, I was just clear in the beginning. I'm I don't want to tour. I, I will play like if they get to the level that are really cool, big, huge festivals. I, I'm down, of course. But also by then they might have a new drummer that that they rather do it with, and I can respect that as well, of course. But it's kind of a I rather just write and produce and and mix, you know. Let me just say I'm kind of jealous that that's even an option now. Yeah. Because I'll just say real quick, 15 years ago, that was not looked at favorably because we had a, my my co-founder in my band wanted to be that way. Yeah. He didn't want to tour. He hated the idea. And it was probably better for him not to tour because he had, he had some uh, conditions, let's just say conditions, yeah. that didn't, yeah, I have diabetes type 1, so, I mean, that's hard. If I somehow don't have insulin or whatever, I'm in trouble. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, for sure. His were more of the... Uh, Mentally. Yeah, 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 more of that. I don't want to talk shit about him. Let's but, not. But he was not really suited for that level of stress and human interaction, basically. He just wanted to write the music, perform on the records, and man, that was such a problem for the label. So I tried to construct exactly what you're talking about doing, the live lineup, which I was a part of, what Will Putney's done, yeah. which is totally fine. But I guess 
the world wasn't ready for that in 2004, 2005. Okay. And it almost got us dropped. Like yeah. it, uh, it was a huge, serious issue. Because they, why did they want him specifically on stage? Um, because they like his voice. Oh, he was a singer. He was a singer. That, okay, then I really understand it. It's yeah. easier because it's easier to But do it's it if death you're. Metal. Yeah, all right. But Still, at the same time, it. at the same time, uh, when if you really like a band and another singer comes up on stage, that's just yeah, weird. dude. It's a shitty situation to be in yeah. uh, for me too, because I didn't find out about this till we were already getting signed. Yeah. Oh shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we're not talking about death. <laughs> yeah. So, have you ever had a dream of touring? Yeah, when I was a kid, but I didn't really know what it what, what it was all about. You know, I yeah. really love playing. Like live, it's fun. It's really fun. But I mean, everything around it uh, for me. I, I'm not saying I'm anti-touring. I mm -hmm. will tour with my own, with my own bands that are like like Viljarda and HLB. But all those guys are the same way as me. So we will tour if there's a great deal and we feel like everyone has time and it's mm -hmm. a great thing. That's fine. Like, so it's got to be the right circumstance. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm the only thing I'm saying is I'm not the guy that can't wait to get out on tour. Fair enough. That's all I, I'm saying. So. That makes sense. And as far as production goes, did you start just to be able to do your own stuff like so many Definitely. people? I had like a rare thing because my dad is an engineer. Like an audio engineer? Yeah. Has That's a studio, cool. all that. Live technician and a studio technician knows how to tune drums, knows how to mic up drums, everything. That's awesome. So that's like, uh, again, I'm pretty privileged that way. Man, I don't think that you have to have a parent that is in music. I know lots of people who don't have, who they're like the first in their family yeah. to have the, the musical bug. I also know a lot of people who got it from their parents, me yeah. included. Same here. It is what it is. Yeah, you it can't is pick is. your parents. No, you can't. And I've had tons of help from him. I mean, when I started my bands and stuff, he showed me the first DAW I worked in. I don't think I remember what it was called, but I think it was uh, like an old... We only had Macs when mm -hmm. I was a kid. So it was like a sound something, but it's, it was sound not... Forge. No, but it was not GarageBand. But it was... I, I remember we had GarageBand as well uh, on that computer, but it was, it's what, it was another one called sound something but he showed me that and I had my pod and I recorded mm -hmm. and I, I think I, I learned how I went to music school so I learned how to program drums in uh, Reason so yeah. I, I did that in school and brought it back home and I tracked guitars in that DAW through our like Mbox one mm -hmm. the, the, like the one that stood up the old one yep. so That's what I started with, and uh, that's all because of him, of course. And I had drums at home when uh, when I grew up, which I played on when oh, I man, was that's like so three. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So was he like? Uh, did he do records, or is he more like the local studio guy who just does different gigs? Or he did what was the nature of his? He did. Uh, I think it was uh, in the. He, he has two brothers, and they had a band, and they uh, started. They had a studio together, and they. Together they so bought. So he's like one of us, yeah. just from an earlier generation. For sure, yeah. Like Beatles covers and stuff like that, you know. Uh, That's awesome. So uh, and he had a studio that burnt down with like a lot of gear. That which, sucks. Yeah. So, uh, but he had drums, uh, uh, and I got to have them at home when I, I think I got them when I was like nine or eight. I got them uh, set up in my room, mm -hmm. and uh, for some reason, my family let me play a lot. 
which is crazy. But That's great. Like even my sister was sleeping, and I I was allowed to play somehow. I don't know why, but uh, I got to do it, and that's why I could learn all all that I've learned. Hey, parents, if you want your kids to be good at music, start them young and let them play whatever they want to play. Yeah, if you if you kind of notice that they have something that they're interested in it and they have a, a capability to do it, then let them do it. The younger, the better. Absolutely, yeah, sure. the, because the more it the more their brain forms with yeah. that, the more likely they are to actually be good at it when they become an adult. Yeah. I've seen it so many times with people. How how young were you when you knew you wanted to do something with there's, it? There's pictures of me when I was two, where I had like, you know, the when you eat uh, Asian food, you have those sticks. Mm -hmm. I used those, we had our own at home, so I used those as drumsticks. Yeah. And I was two. So wow. that it was like I from the get-go. I believe it. I was three when I started playing violin. Cool. Because of being taken to the symphony and watching yeah. the violinists. It's I like, saw like, imagine like X-Factor-ish or whatever it's called. Like when children get to get dressed up and mm -hmm. sing their favorite song on TV. Yeah. Uh, we had that in Sweden uh, called Sikta Mutwanona. It's like aim for the stars. I'm not even going to try it. No, I, don't I, do I, it. <laughs> I had the urge, but yeah. I was like, wow, I'm going to so, lose uh, that. We had that and I saw Kiss, Love It, Lo Love it Loud or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That start with the drum drum thing that got me sold on rock and hard rock and stuff like that. So that kind of propelled me into doing that stuff. And I just and how old were you? Probably five, maybe or something like Fucking that. Fucking young. And I saw that and I went crazy for it. So all all of like my allowances went to Kiss records. So I was all about Kiss. I think I had like twenty five Kiss records at the end of the period where I bought records. So I just spent all my money on it. So, you know, what's interesting to me here is that people always talk about how in Sweden there's those social programs of music education in schools. Very important. Yes, very important. However, not everybody has a family at home. Nope. Like that. <laughs> or a drum set at home. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's what I'm saying. That's So Sweden or no Sweden, I still think that say you were born here in the US yeah. who doesn't have social programs like that with your family you probably would have still ended up sure. doing what you're doing now sure definitely i think that's far more important than any any program that comes from the outside world is what happens but i, at I home. was so lucky I, it's crazy like specifically with the kiss thing because there was a shopping mall near where i, where I lived where a guy sold off his entire kiss collection <laughs> which is rare so I, every month when i got my allowance i just went there picked a record and just kept on doing that till i had a lot so there was a rare shit I bought and stuff like that. I, I mean, if you go to a, to a record store back then, they had maybe a couple of Kiss records, but they didn't have hundreds, you know. Yeah. So he, I don't know his name or anything, but he sold a lot to me, and uh, that way I got to hear a lot of. Uh, what would you stuff. What would you do with them? Just listen, or would you try to learn them? Or always learning. I'm minding you're a five or six year old. Kid. Yeah, but I'm, the thing about that is like I had an. What's it called? Interval. interval um, what's it called? The ear. When you have the ear, you can identify notes. Perfect pitch. I don't have per perfect pitch. I have the interval pitch. Oh, relative pitch. Relative pitch. Yeah, yeah. So I know the distance. Yes. Automatically. Me too. So that. Oh, cool. So that 
helped a lot in learning the songs, uh, but I started on drums, but that helped as well, just having the ear for it. So I kind of just automatically had my headphones on and played the drums to Kiss, and uh, it, w it went on from there. So relative pitch for, I know that I just want to quickly explain to people that, so perfect pitch, it, just in case you're wondering, because I think a lot of people don't know this or they're curious about, they want to know if they've got it or if their kid has it. Perfect pitch is something you're born with. Yeah. You can't develop it. You can develop your musical understanding and all that, but the basics of you hear a note, you identify that note exactly, that's you're either born with it or you're not. Yeah. I tried to develop it and I tried so, so hard and then... You can I, if you really remember kind of, songs kind and you know of. what key they're in. You can, but but you, that's relative. Yeah, you're using the relative pitch yeah. to identify. Yeah, no, this is like they can hear an air conditioner whining an yeah. A flat. <laughs> like, so the, it's... Pretty cool. My, my dad has it and I would cool. test him. Yeah. Actually, Jason Sukoff has it and um, he used to play this game called the Tone Goblin game. That was like his uh, his AIM handle. AOL? AOL Instant Messenger for uh, those of you who are too young to know. But uh, Tone Goblin game was where you would be on the phone with him and yeah. just play oh. play a random sequence and he would tell you the numbers. Yeah. And it could be long, long, long stretches of it. He's got perfect pitch, like. But it's it's kind of like I'm just reciting numbers to you, and you just recite them back. That for him, that's probably that's, the same thing. That's what it is. Yeah. I wish I understood how they how they know because before they know notes of names, they've still got it. Yeah, that's the part that's crazy to me. Like, but you they ha have to, yeah. But they they don't know it's an A if, when they they're born. They have to learn yes the alphabet to know what an A is. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I'm under wondering. How do they know what they're hearing before they have the vocabulary? Maybe someone who teaches this stuff can chime in in the comments or something, but or hit me up and tell me. But I've always wanted to know how does yeah. someone with perfect pitch express their perfect pitch before they have a musical vocabulary? Yeah, who knows? But you've got relative pitch, Just which relative. is arguably better to have because Why? <laughs> because okay. So I've known a lot of people with perfect pitch. You know, lots of classical musicians have yeah. it. They say that it's a curse because you can't listen to, maybe now you could, but back then you they couldn't listen to any music on the radio. They can't listen to anything because before auto-tune and stuff, like it was really frequent for shit to be way out of tune, oh. super flat. Or and I guess I can hear it really well now, but they could hear it to a level where it was just it ruins their day. Or yeah. if like the air conditioner is humming an A flat and they're practicing violin, yeah, and they're hearing an A flat yeah. the whole time, it makes them crazy. Yeah, like I get that. Yeah. So everywhere they go, it's like have you ever seen one of those superhero movies where they first have their powers? And their powers are like too intense, <laughs> yeah. and they have to learn how. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> so relative pitch apparently is like a good happy medium, because you can, you know enough to where you can work, yeah, get shit done, understand music, but it's not like a constant bombardment. I didn't know I had it till I was like seventeen or something. Because when I went to music what school, happened? I went to music school and I learned the music theory, 
and mm-hmm. uh, they kind of showed me the um, the inter- intervals, and I just instantly knew what what it was because they just told me the names of the inter- intervals, and I, and they played it, and I was like, okay, so. Every time I hear two notes, I, I would know mm-hmm. what the distance are between them. But I already knew that before because I was constantly learning songs uh, at home on the guitar, mm-hmm. and I could hear a riff and I instantly knew how to play it. Like if it was, it was, it was like a relatively simple riff, you know. So you, so how would you express it before you learned the vocabulary? I wouldn't. I, I think I wouldn't express it. I would just. I you would just, just he- learn easily. Yeah. Okay. I just hear a riff, and I was like, okay, I hear that it's that distant between notes, and I hear mm-hmm. the chord, and I can just do it. You didn't know that it was even a thing, probably. It's just. Yeah, I didn't. You just know understood it. music. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Did learning the vocabulary part change anything for you? Did it help? Just help me explain it to other people if they knew what I was talking about, that is. Um, many people I was in band with, bands with didn't really know what I was talking about because I'd, I'd say, like, go to that note and that note, uh, like a guitarist, and he didn't know, and, I'll, and I would say the interval, and he still wouldn't know, so it didn't <laughs> really help me. <laughs> but, but it's cool to kind of know, uh, it's, it was cool to learn. Third right fret, away. second string, yeah, yeah, yeah. fourth fret, fifth string. That's right. <laughs> Whatever you got to do to communicate. But I mean, I guess in the long run, did it help with your... Yeah, it certainly helps. Like if I'm programming based or something like that, Mm -hmm. I just know like how to do it pretty fast. But I wouldn't say it it has helped me a ton or held me back a ton. It's just it is what it is. It's just a thing. What about theory? Did you learn all that stuff too? Not all of it. I uh, I had good grades in it, but I I don't know like the uh, like fancy chords and scales and stuff like that. I I've forgotten all about that. So I just really know the intervals or notes. The basics. Yeah, the basics. I'd say. You know, it's interesting to me. I learned some of it to a certain degree. I never really went to that level of like really being to identify every fancy fucking chord and like the super, super in-depth stuff that the jazz guys use. Yeah. That's kind of where I started to be like, eh. Same. And it's it's honestly never come up. It doesn't really. Yeah. And then I hear bands like Opeth are using those chords, but the thing is I've never heard Michael ever talk about theory, ever. Yeah. And I think he said he doesn't know any which I'm not sure I believe, but just because they're too damn good. I mean, Viljard, the Viljarda guys, I remember <laughs> the guitarist, he asked me like two or three years ago, he asked me what the rhythm was. <laughs> like, <laughs> so that, that's kind of the level so, we're at with those guys, but they make the craziest music, so I'm not going to say anything about that. So that that's, I guess what I'm getting at is how important do you think that the traditional music training is? Because you've gone through it. Yeah, if you're not musical, it will help a lot if if you really want to do musical music. But if you're already musical enough, uh, you don't really need it. If you can write music without it, you should. Yeah, I agree. It helps. I, I noticed that... So back in those days when I was going to school, a lot of people would say they didn't want to learn theory because it makes you robotic or... It like kills your creativity. And I thought that was bullshit. And they would tell me that that's what it was going to do to me. And what they didn't understand was the reason I was writing like theoretically complex stuff was because that's how I heard it. Yeah. It's not because it's something I learned. The learning part, all it did was help me write it down. Yeah. 
and then because I would write shit by hand back then and then it would help me try to explain it to other people but it didn't like when I was sitting there writing they seemed to have this idea that you would sit there writing and then think to yourself well what, what about this note what, and no, this scale yes. yeah. oh wait it's not proper I can't I would never do that shit no. Ever. <laughs> But if you're a mu musician, like uh, Adam Neely has a video on this, mm -hmm. specif specifically this topic. But he is a guy that needs to be able to read music. They put music in front of him and he, and he just plays. And that's fair if you want to learn that. Uh, and Wait, that Adam Neely, the, yeah, the bassist? bassist. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and he needs to be able to learn music from from but he's reading in, it. But he's in that world. Yeah, he's really in that world. Yeah, yeah. world. Yeah, the the academ academia of music, you know. The and that jazz world yeah. too, like that. So I kind of feel like like this about school in any in any field really. If the field you're in requires formal knowledge or degrees, then that's what you have to do. Yeah, same as I mean, doctor or lawyer. If you are in the jazz world or musical academia or whatever, you're going to be in scenarios where you have to know this shit. Yeah. If you go, if you play jazz gigs, you're going to get charts. You're, you have to know this stuff. Yeah. You, you can't just get by. It's pretty cool to watch that. There, there was a drummer, G.P. Wait, J.P. Bouvet, who was the stand-in for Periphery, and he learned all the stuff uh, with reading it. Mm -hmm. But the cool thing he explained there was that he could memorize it faster uh, because of that. So that's also valid. If you have to learn shit fast and you know how to read music, that would probably be faster than just sitting down listening and start to remember stuff. Probably faster. Absolutely. And so it all has its kind of uh, uses, I guess, use cases for using the knowledge in that way. Man, even in metal, Kevin Talley. Uh, yeah. yeah. Shout out to him. He, uh, he I borrowed all his gear for a gig in Spain and Resurrection Fest with Viljarda because uh, our airline got rid of all of, all of our gear. So he lent me everything. He's cool like that. He's cool. Just so for people who don't know, Kevin's, uh, he was the drummer in my band, but he's, I'd say for the 2000 through 2010 yeah. and on, but like in that time period specifically, he was one of the best Death he played for drummers. everyone, like played for everyone. Slayer, Misery Index, uh, Black Dahlia yeah, Murder, Black Dahlia. Devil Driver, I yeah. think he did a Gojira gig once. Yeah, he actually joined Suffocation. Yeah. I don't I don't understand why he was in my band. <laughs> But like, he did the Red Chord, yeah. like he did so many bands. And uh, I remember that he would learn the stuff in like one night too. Like I remember with the Devil Driver situation, John Berkland, the drummer, who's now the drummer in Bad Wolves, he got food poisoned oh, in the morning. And they asked Kevin to fly in that day and come play a show that night. He learned it on the plane and wrote his little charts. That He would always write these little charts. And I think that's what he did with Black Dahlia Murder, too. He had to learn that stuff like within a day and a half. So... Yeah, so yeah, writing, and Rudinger, Alex Rudinger, anytime I've worked with him, uh, when he's learning stuff, he's got charts in front of him. Yeah, from uh, the other guy, what's it called, his teacher. The guy with two toms, that that was uh, Rudinger's teacher. The guy who played in Periphery. Matt? Uh, no, no, before. Oh, I, I don't know. Okay, never mind. Travis Orban. Oh, Travis Orban is Rudinger's teacher. Yeah. Interesting. Was, at least. I didn't know that. Okay, that makes sense. And I know drum charts are different than like the charts we would read as a guitar player, but there's, yeah. there's a time and place for that stuff. I actually wrote 
HLB's first album, the self-titled one, I wrote that entirely in, in, in uh, Guitar Pro. Like no guitar? No guitar. Tell me about that, because you're a guitar player. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I'm both a drummer and a guitar player. So, so as far as that goes, that that was like the first time I heard Viljarda. I was like, okay, I need to step up my riffing to a whole nother another level. So that doesn't you, before you were in the band. Yeah, so okay. that that doesn't include me sitting down playing because I understood that me sitting down playing those types of riff would not happen, but because the way they record riffs are like. There's a lot of editing, and the way they track it is so tightly involved with how the final product ends up. But did you know that then? No. Then it just sounded crazy. Yeah, I was like, these guys are crazy. I don't know what they're doing. Uh, and mm -hmm. the only like the only videos online were like them in the re rehearsal space. So I was like, oh, so they're doing that shit in rehearsal space. Uh, <laughs> I need to step up my game. Mm -hmm. So the only like I had to tab stuff out for the guys to learn. So I already kind of knew Guitar Pro. So I just started writing there to make weirder riffs, just crazier riffs. Weirder because you weren't because constrained. Control V. <laughs> that was, yeah, if you copy a section and yeah. then copy it and it got offset, so it got kind of weird loops going on. Oh, okay. Instead of being just 4-4 and just starting over, and I made like long loops of riffs that just continued forever. Interesting, and not constrained by your hands, yeah. I guess. You know, okay, I want to talk about this because I've talked shit about people who write in Guitar Pro, but <laughs> I have no shit to talk about you because I think you're awesome. And I know that you, obviously, you have a serious musical background yeah. and you know what you're doing. So you are not what I'm talking about when I talk shit about it. So here's where I'm coming from when I've talked shit about it. Right. And when I say I talk shit about it, I've talked shit about it. Yeah. And I've, I've like written articles oh, for really? Metal Sucks about it like 10 years ago. About, and <laughs> here's what was bothering me. Yeah. I would get bands to record who had never played their parts ever, who didn't know if their parts were even doable but they weren't really skilled to begin with. So it's not like the Meshuggah drummer programming drums on an album just because he hurt his wrist and just fuck it, everyone knows he can play it in. It's not like when Fear Factory decided to have programmed drums as a production choice when obviously Fear Factory could play. Gene Owen. Yeah, he could play whatever he wants. Yeah. So it, I was getting bands who couldn't play shit, yeah. who were just they were just programming Guitar Pro and then coming to the studio and wanting to record this stuff. And it was like, have you ever played this? Like, yeah. this makes no sense on the guitar. And it's not like I'm working with, like, some genius who, like, who they did it that way, but then they're going to know how it makes sense. And so I was making the argument that it was getting people disconnected from the actual act of making music it was getting bands disconnected from actually playing and i was feeling like that it is it's correct I, I i'd say that's correct okay all right so i'm not off with that no but i don't think it's a bad thing because it's okay. all about the music and the end result and, Fair you, and someone sitting at the bus and listening to the riff that that's crazy sounding i don't care at all if you can play it i don't care at all if you can play live or whatever, and some of the riffs uh, I've written, written are barely, like barely possible to play. But on record, they're sound, sounding nuts, and that's what I care about. Okay, so here the thing is, that was not happening with the, the people no. I was talking about. Okay, it's not that their riffs sounded nuts. It's more like 
they were just laid out stupidly. Okay. So like, did it make sense? They weren't playable, not because the guy wrote something like Igor, yeah, or whatever, right? <laughs> we're just listening to Igor. Everyone listening, I G O R R R, check it out. Yeah, the new song with the yeah. corpse yeah. grinder on it's sick. Or yeah, and also um, a song called "Very Noise." Just check it out. <laughs> it's such a good title. Yeah, yeah how much noise? Very noise. Very noise. <laughs> it's so, but that's what I mean. Like, it's not stuff that's crazy. It was just stuff that was stupidly laid out. Yeah, it was impossible to play because it was stupidly laid out, yeah. and it was stuff that would. It was like metalcore. It wasn't okay. like they were like breaking any boundaries. It was like teleport drifts, like one note at the second fret yes. and one at the sixteenth fret, like straight after. Yeah, when you could just play it a few strings yeah. higher. But that's also a thing. Yeah, I'll have to explain explain that. That's the classic thing when you look at people trying to cover Viljarda songs. Mm -hmm. Listen closely. <laughs> people are doing the the thing you say. Like if you have the note on the sixteenth fret. They'll just bring it down here uh, to the fourth fret or whatever because it's easier to re reach. But it doesn't have the same sound. It doesn't I agree. sound I agree completely. at all the same. Like people make the covers and they they'll pick the right notes. To be fair, but they they won't pick the right fret or the right string because Viljara does a huge amount of riffing on like the thickest string above like above the twelfth fret, like way high, which gets uh -huh. this bassy sound. By the way, I'm with you on this. Yeah, um, Amol, the other guitar player in Doth and I used to talk about them as vertical bands versus horizontal. Okay, Mastodon is a band that plays up and down. Uh, we used to do that a lot too. So yeah. we would do vertical riffs a lot, you know, like play it on the 12th fret yeah. instead of the 5th fret because of the way it sounds. And then also when I track guitar players, if we're doing harmony parts, yeah. even on like like simple metalcore third harmonies, yeah. I would always have them track it on the same string yeah. because course, otherwise, yeah. yeah, the tone difference would just be... Yeah. Weird. You just kind of have to evaluate it yourself and listen yeah. what sounds best. But but that's not how they were thinking. No, they're just so, thinking this is a note on this fret, like yeah. nothing more than that. Yeah. So with these guitar pro guys, dude, they're not. They weren't thinking about it like the way we are, where you have a note on the second fret and then the sixteenth fret, and you're doing it on the same string for an artistic reason. Yeah. The artistic reason is you want that certain kind of feel. That you'll get at this. That's not what was happening. They were just writing riffs that are stupidly laid out because yeah. they weren't thinking it through. Yeah, that was my issue. It wasn't like I'm all for pushing the boundaries, and I guess intentionality is one of my biggest musical values. I think yeah, that, you have to have intention, know what yeah. you're doing, and do it like do a certain thing because it sounds better. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And Guitar Pro was getting people disconnected from that in some cases. Mm. But then we've got people like you where it's not. And I understand completely your ethos that what really matters is the end result. I wanted it to sound inhuman. Yeah. That's like because the main focus with these two bands is a lot of evil sounding riffs. Mm -hmm. And evil isn't human, I, I don't think. Like pure, like evil. I mean, humans can be evil, but humans aren't evil, like if you think about them broadly. So it's kind of. Ted Bundy's pretty evil. I mean, yeah. But I wanted. I but wanted he was it nice to, sound to his daughter. Great. <laughs> Sorry. I wanted it. I wanted it to sound like inhuman or like something else. I was just using that Ted Bundy example because someone I know that 
wanted to prove to me that... Uh, he was a nice guy? No, not that he was a nice guy, but that everybody deserves redemption because they have a good side. And I don't... Depends. Uh, <laughs> I think there's there's a line. Yeah, there's a somewhere. Line. I mean, yeah, Hitler had a dog. I mean, Stalin yeah. doesn't really... Didn't deserve any... No, no, there's some good. people that have crossed the line. But, so, you're thinking about evil more like in this, like the... Alien type of sense. Like mm-hmm. something that's... Uh, like inherently foreign. Mm-hmm. That's a fancy way of putting it. Okay. <laughs> so, right? so, so something that's not like a human trait. Yeah. Or, or something that sounds. Like, but it's, it should sound foreign. It shouldn't sound like something you've heard before. Fair uh, enough. It's just, just sound, it should sound mean as like a, if a human hears it, she or he or she shouldn't like think, oh, this sounds happier. This sounds whatever. But it should still have that kind of evil sound as far as notes. Well, mission accomplished. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so that's kind of what I'm going for, which kind of, and, and whatever it takes, you know. Mm-hmm. That to me is admirable. Like, I respect that a lot. But I, I also stopped doing it. I only did it for that album. Why'd you stop? Okay, I did it for that album and the EP after, to be fair. So then I created this session where I could riff and I had like a finished mix on any riff I wanted to play. So I can just record any riff and I could bounce it out and it would sound like the album. It, like the same uh, session I mixed the album in is the same uh, mix I tracked the album in. So every, and it's the same thing now, tracking the album I'm doing now. I can just have the final results like that. Mm-hmm. So, and that kind of made me start playing more. And uh, I mean, I did the Guitar Pro thing for two albums and now I've done that, so the thing I'm doing now is different. I play uh, and edit in a certain way and use the, the tools in the DAW instead of writing down notation because I want to hear the music, you know. It yeah. was really, I, I kind of programmed drums and put like the shitty Guitar Pro beside it to kind of hear some sort of music going. I just had a bunch of guitar profiles and I didn't program drums in them or bass. I just had like a, and I didn't even use a distorted guitar sound. It was just the worst sounding stuff. <laughs> so, so that was kind of, I mean, if a riff sounds good in that though, it's, it's a good riff, to that's, be fair. That's true, you know, it's, and you can tell this with when great songs or great pieces of music are covered in other instruments or done 8-bit or yeah. you get a shitty piano MIDI version and it's still cool. Yeah. Like a good example is like the old Nintendo music. Yeah, for the sure. old Nintendo music when you hear like a crappy little MIDI piano versions or a badly played cover or a well played cover or eight vocalists doing it yeah. or a dude with banjos or whatever it's still just as, like the Castlevania theme, for instance, it's yeah. still just as good. Because yeah. it's good music. And people would also say that idea that if it sounds good on an acoustic guitar, it's it's good. Yeah. I don't know if I always agree with that, because some riffs you can't actually play on. No, it kind of sounds weird with the palm muting and stuff. But still, the, the concept, I think, is true. If yeah. it sounds good in a shittier medium, if like it's still capturing you, then that's good. Yeah, for sure. I wish I could. I mean, there's a difference between the newer HLB material and the old, and I think a lot of fans notice it, and I think it has something to do with the Guitar Pro method versus me sitting down playing, for sure. But that's what I'm doing now, and that's the way it is, you know. That's your right as an artist. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's I your have, art. Yeah, I want to do I want to do it this way and that's what I'm doing. So how do you know that it's the finished product, I guess? The reason I'm asking is because I'm so used to people, you know, getting an amp tone while they're tracking, yeah. right? And then make the record and then they reamp it. Or I'm just so used to scenarios that I've been involved with or just people I worked with or just people who have been on the podcast or whatever talking about how the tracking and mixing are two totally separate things. How do you know that that's the final tone? It doesn't do have just, to be do the final know? tone. I, it doesn't have to be the final tone, but I'm tracking DIs. Mm -hmm. So I'm using amp sims. Yeah. So that doesn't have to be the final tone. I, I reamped when, when the album was done and I'm, I'm probably going to do the same for this one. So it's not the final tone, but it's definitely the final tracking because I wrote it and it sound good. It sounds good. It sounds like the way I want it to. Why would I retrack? Oh yeah, 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 for sure. Ah, hmm. uh, okay. So what you're saying is, when you're writing, you're writing it for the final. Yeah. You're not writing a demo. Yeah, for sure. Okay, that makes perfect sense. So then I'm assuming that when you're writing, your guitars are perfectly set up. And Definitely. I mean, per I, don't, I wouldn't say perfectly, but I tried well to have, I, yeah, well enough. I tried to have newer strings on and stuff like that. And the Evertune really helps, you know, for, for keeping it in tune and stuff like that. So that's not a problem, really, for me, at least. I've always told people that when, that they should never consider a demo, quote unquote, just a demo, for a number of reasons. The main one being, that you never know what's going to end up on the final record. So even if they don't write like you, if they demo stuff and then plan to go to the studio, there could be like little creative parts or leads or yeah. whatever that just was a time, a time in space, a time in place, a, time, a yeah. moment, a mo what am I trying to say? A moment in time yeah. that can't be recreated. You're never going to play it better. That's the thing with the Villagerta stuff that I got, they got some critiques on in the comments, like, why wouldn't they retract? Why would they pitch and stuff like that? Oh, you mean, you mean like in, in the Nail the Mix ads? Yeah, yeah. But, Let's talk about that in a but second. The, yeah, the thing about that, I mean, I get their point definitely, and there, there's definitely some laziness to it, but one of the guitarists has like a chronic uh, hand pain thing that mm -hmm. he really struggles with, has struggled with for years which means that some days he really can't play. And when he can play, he'd rather, rather do something new than kind of retract something. We, we will retract some stuff, definitely. Some, sometimes it's just like, I made a better tone and they want to use that instead. So they'll retract, mm -hmm. it's not a problem. But sometimes they just pitch the entire session to another tempo or, or another uh, note. And if it sounds good, why not use it? But I was I, I was against it when they sent stuff to me like that. I was like, can't you just retract it? Because I hear a lot of artifacts here, but in the full mix, you, you're not hearing it. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many 
many others, over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. So... There's a big difference, as I know you know, because you've been in Nail the Mix. There's a difference between our community, the like the gated community, <laughs> okay? Yeah, you know, for once people are in Nail the Mix versus the people who respond to our ads and yeah. stuff. Our ads are the general public. We can't control how they behave on that, and they behave the way that people behave on the internet. Yeah. So for anyone listening, if you've seen our ads and you see the comments there, that's not how our community is. You can't police YouTube comments. And first of all, it looks lame if you start deleting yeah, too many comments. you should comments. never do that. I only do it if like the shit people are saying is starting to get destructive or like racist or some shit like that. Yeah. Like if it's starting to cross the line, but if they're just talking shit, just let it let go. Let do it, yeah. yeah but I'd rather just explain to them. Yeah. But, and if they keep hating after that, it's like, okay, you're, you just want to hate. So you just want to hate. But sometimes, oh, they didn't understand. So they'll say, oh, okay, that, I didn't understand that, that. That is a lot of it. Yeah. A lot of it I've noticed is people just don't get it. Yeah. And all you have to do is explain it to them like calmly and rationally. And they'll get it. I understand in some ways why people would say, why didn't you just retrack it? But the thing at the end of the day that I think is so much more important than doing things quote-unquote properly is whether the artistic intent is being carried out and how the end result sounds. That's what really, really matters. Also, a lot of these people that are talking shit, man, they're not necessarily making a living at this. No, And when you're making a living at this, you have you get sessions that aren't perfect. What yeah. are you going to do? Send them back? I mean, you could, but not always. No, but also a thing that I kind of can't stand is people that are just saying haters are going to be haters or whatever, or, or just kind of just labeling all hate as uh, invalid or whatever. And I'm not like that. I'm not going to say like, this guy said something hateful, therefore his existence is just invalid and he should just shut up. I agree I'm not with about you. that at all. Like, people can criticize and be right. Like, that's totally. fair. It's not like uh, because a guy is behind his computer and lives out in a, his mom's house, 
that his brain can't produce anything good. Of course it can. Of course he, he has an opinion that comes from somewhere. I mean, I'm not gonna just tell him to fuck off and just, oh, he's just a loser, you live in your mom's basement. Never. Plus you never even know if they live in their no, mom's basement. No, but I just see a lot of people that get critiqued, that should get critiqued, that are just kind of just uh, saying saying that stuff to, to their community and only embracing the positive, which I don't really agree with. I don't agree with it either. I learned this back when my band was getting critiqued because I'd see critiques and I'd agree with them sometimes. Yeah. And I'd be like, this is really, really valuable because what he's saying are thoughts that I had in the studio, but I didn't fight for them. Yeah. And now he's noticing them. Yeah. And this is like... This is confirming something for me. Or sometimes I'll hear things that I didn't think of, yeah. uh, like a critique on maybe the way we do things or that I didn't realize would have a certain consequence or it would be interpreted a certain way, and that's how you find out. Yeah. You can't classify all negative feedback as people just being haters. There are some people, though, that are just toxic. Yeah, for sure, for are, sure. That... I'm but not you know, cool you always, always know when that's the case because well, they yeah. won't stop. They won't stop. No matter how rationally you try to engage them yeah. and explain it to them, they still just keep on coming. They yeah. turn up the volume on the yeah. hate. That just means there's something broken upstairs, I think. Might be. <laughs> Probably. They don't necessarily live with their mom, though. No, maybe basement. not. Yeah. Maybe not. I think that's a myth, man. I think a lot of people who get critiqued online their way of dealing with dealing it. with it like is, keyboard warriors yeah you know. yeah dude everybody's a yeah. keyboard warrior everybody's yeah. online literally everyone yeah so these people that are talking shit they could be it could be a huge producer that's got like 17 grammys or you know you never know who these people are exactly like they're not all basement dwelling losers exactly so uh, treat them all with respect and i do agree that it's an opportunity to educate them. Yeah, and don't just kind of only take in the positives and, and just say that the others are just losers. You have to take it all in. Yeah, if you're gonna accept the positive, you kind of have to accept the negative too, in my opinion. Otherwise, you're just being selective about it. Yeah. So when I saw those critiques about the session, I understood where they were coming from. Yeah. Those critiques were not inside our community, though. But to be fair, yeah. I fucked up the HLB session. To be fair, that's uh, my fault. That's all on me. I'll say that. I'll, I don't care. Like we all make mistakes. I, I care about that I fucked it up, but I, I don't care about telling everyone. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to hide. That was a mistake from from my side, uh, and uh, I uh, I'm sorry about that. You know, but it's an easy it fix. Happens. It's also an easy fix. Yeah, uh, totally. It's not not a deal breaker. But uh, I got uh, I got the uh, guys who wrote wrote me, and I checked it out, and he was right. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> Dude, it happens. Yeah, it, it totally happens. That's that's another reason for why you should never take never take the stance of immediately looking down on people who tell you stuff like this. Yeah, because they could be right. Yeah, of course. Oftentimes they are. Of course. But man, seriously, learning the difference though between. A person who just has destructive intent yeah. versus someone. There's a few categories. There's a person who has destructive intent. Then there's the category of people who are just confused. Yeah, they just don't understand. 
Like when they're saying, why didn't you just have them retract? Yeah. They're not trying to be dicks. No. They just don't under, they don't get it. Like, because in their world, you just have them retract. Yeah. They're just voicing their confusion. Yeah. So and that's and, fine. And then there's other people who they'll notice a problem and they just want to help you out. Yeah, for sure. So, for sure. yeah. I'm not perfect. I won't say I am. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm thankful for, uh, for kind of learning from my mistakes, you know? Yeah, totally. So I, I think it's really cool that you've got this attitude towards that type of reaction. And I saw you responding to people yeah. and trying to explain things. And you know what's interesting to me is sometimes even when someone's being super negative about something, if I get in there and I'm polite with them yeah. and I just explain it to them, yes, you're right, sometimes they'll just keep going. Yeah. But sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah. And we become friends. Like, for instance, something that happens a lot is someone who's never been in the community, uh, when, people are, uh, when about, people are talking about about online programs or us, they'll just come in with, like, it's a scam. Like, <laughs> you can never, you can't learn that shit online or something like that. Jeez. And But the thing is, some of them are just being dicks. Some of them probably signed up for some shitty course by somebody who's never worked with anybody yeah. who just gave really bad information. There's a lot of that out there. Or maybe they signed up for something and then never got the info delivered. Yeah. Like, dude, that happens. So there's. I'm, I'm the first to say, I'll be the first one to say, like, all these courses uh, that are available, Nail the Mix and others, like, they've helped me a ton. And, uh, that's no no scam or anything like that. It's just people showing their methods on how they achieve their sound, and that has helped me out a ton to achieve my sound. That's what we're here for. I mean, I think, I mean, you know it. That you wouldn't be here if you thought it was a a scam. But the thing is, there are. We've had to fight this this stigma. There are a lot of scammers on the internet. There's a lot of people who see that there's companies like ours or Pure Mix or Mix with the Masters or whatever. Mix with the Masters is great as well, yeah. Yeah, you know, who are doing good stuff. And we make it look easy. Brian Hood, he makes his shit look easy. Yeah. And so uh, a lot of people think, oh, I'll just do it too. Yeah. Easy money. And they don't, they don't know what goes into it. Like, they don't know, like, in my case, I'm working on, this is built, like I was telling you, off of relationships that go back 15 years. Yeah. And then my own career in music, yeah. and then my partner's careers, and, like, and mixed with the masters, like, you don't get the kinds of people they have on by chance. Like, exactly. Yeah, or pure mix. That's not good luck. Yeah. Good fucking luck. Also, th I want to... Thank Brian Hood for the shout out on the, the podcast you two did. He shouted me out as uh, one of his students. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, and, now, well, and now I'm here, so uh, it's really cool. Well, shout out to Brian Hood in yeah. general. Uh, I, I like that guy. He's a great podcast and yeah. super smart guy. Really? I went to Nashville a few months ago and had lunch with him. Cool. He's, uh, he's cool. Okay, so there's that level of stuff. Like, But then there's a bunch of people who see that and... I'm not saying that you don't have the right to have a voice if you have no credits, but if you're going to be teaching people how to do this yeah. and you've never made a record before. Kind of weird. Kind of weird. And I think that people have bought that stuff yeah. from people who are just good marketers and then got in bullshit in return. And then 
that's why they think that it's all a scam. Yeah. So when they see Nail the Mix, and we don't promise results, but we, but we talk about a lot of benefits, and they see that, and then their Im- immediate response is, well, that's a scam, because they got scammed before. Yeah. So, but that's a vocal minority. Yeah, but there's enough of But all it takes, though, is like a few people like that yeah, being sure. loud. So I'll talk to them like in public very, very politely, and I'll offer them like a free month yeah. and just be like, look, I understand you may have had a bad experience somewhere else. You know, I'll give you a month or two for free on the house. Mm. If you don't like it, no problem. Yeah. But uh, I, I want you to at least know what you're talking about. Yeah. If you're if you're not, if you're gonna say bad things about us, it should be based on facts. Facts. Yeah. Absolutely. And lots of times, those people become like some of the best customers. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah. And you shouldn't and you shouldn't give them shit for it. Like they they had a bad a bad, a bad experience and they thought this was gonna be the same thing. Yeah. And it's great that they realized that it wasn't. Yeah. Though sometimes they're like, no thanks, I don't want your generosity. Oh, it's like, <laughs> whoa. Yeah, they're that pissed. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. So I am understanding that you learned to really record and stuff kind of like to fulfill your own musical visions, right? Definitely. So that's, that's kind of like a very modern way. I did too. That's why I started producing. That's a very modern way yeah. to become a producer. It's about the passion for the music. It's yeah. not about like, oh, I'm going to learn this so I can make money. Yeah. It's, it's like, oh, I really want my band to sound great. And then if your band sounds great, other bands want to sound great. And yeah. they'll approach you. So is that how you started to get clients? Yeah. What, what, I mean, what? I was lucky that HLB became, I wouldn't say we're big, but it became a name. And uh, the production... It's a, re- it's a respect in name. Yeah, so so the production, people uh, were asking who did the production, and I said it was me, But and that's the way I got clients. But also, the, the first album was a huge part of that. And Dino, I have to shout him out, because Me- he did Me- like a STEM master. Dino is, uh, I can't... Uh, Pronounces it. or something. Yeah. By the way, let me just say real quick, he was on He was on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking up his episode number. So I'm just I just want to mention him because the first HLB album, he did like a STEM master of it. I, I really want to include someone else in the production because I wasn't as good back then and I really wanted to make sure the album was sounding as great as could mm-hmm. as, as it could. But I was still confident in taking uh, responsibility for the majority of the sound because I did record it and I did track it and I did make the tones and stuff like that. So I was still saying like, yeah, I mixed it, uh, but he definitely helped me out for that. So you are in podcast number 142, Dino Medan <laughs> <laughs> It was slow, but correct. He's really, really great. Swedish producer. Medan Hodzik. Medan Hodzik. Yeah. Yeah. Medan Hodzik. He's great. And, it's uh, hot and sick. <laughs> Dino Meta Hot and Sick. Yeah. yeah. He does a lot of pop stuff. He comes from a heavy background. but uh, Eurovision now. Yeah, he's killing it. Yeah. But he's great. So I recommend podcast episode 142. Also, Dino, we everybody. should meet up. Uh, I live in Stockholm now. <laughs> yeah, Dino, what the fuck, bro? What the fuck, bro? <laughs> yeah, what, what, what is this? What is this shit? So when bands approached you at first, was it like, we like... HLB, we want to sound like that. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. Did that throw you off at all, or were you like, cool? Cool. I was, I was stoked. I mean, I, I also mixed the EP before the, the self-titled, 
but I wouldn't say I was good at it enough back then. But I, I got clients off of that EP as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first clients, I got to charge like a thousand bucks or one thousand one hundred bucks for five songs, which is, which is great for like the first yeah, client. Yeah, that's great. So that was crazy good. And uh, off of that, it just continued. Uh, and like Philip, who sings for HLB now, uh, his band approached me, was the second band. Uh, and his band approached me and I mixed them uh, like 2011 or two, two, 2012. And uh, and it just went on from there. Word of mouth, though, yeah. right? Did you ever do any sort of advertising or no marketing? That's like now with Impact Studios. That wasn't Impact Studios back then. So Impact Studios now we do like uh, advertising and stuff like that. But back then I didn't know. But Impact Studios, do you do advertising for studio stuff or for I do uh, or for, for, for like the products, your IRs, yeah, and yeah stuff for like IRs and our our bases, our NKI bases. We do. Uh, advertising for those, but that also goes hand in hand with the mixing because our site has both things. But you're not doing ads for mixing, are you? Not really, Mo- okay. mostly product. Yeah, that's always been my experience that products, yes, marketing and advertising works great for it, but the service of being a producer, the best marketing is your work and the word of mouth. Yeah. I haven't had a single person come on this podcast, and this is going to be like episode 253 or 4. Yeah. It's lots of people. I haven't had a single one say that they used like advertising or something successfully. Are they all, the podcast, are they all available on YouTube or is it no. on the Nail the Mix site? Uh, Nail the Mix site or Spotify or. Okay, so iTunes. they're all uh, on Spotify. Okay, cool. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, YouTube, we stopped. Uh, uploading all of them on there because it was fucking up our algorithm. Oh, for real? Because okay. people, some of them people checked out, but some of them nobody checked out, yeah. and that just messes with the channel, unfortunately. Yeah, fair enough. And also, it's it's a fraction of our total listeners. Yeah, So I'm just realizing it now because I'm l- looking for podcasts when I'm in, at the gym, and I and I thought I had listened to all of them, but I only listened to the YouTube ones. So I oh, have dude. a lot to <laughs> listen dude, to. There's been some good ones too that you've missed. I will I will listen to them for sure. I I learned a ton from the ones I listened to on YouTube. So have you heard Susan Rogers episode? Nope. Check that one out. Will do, <laughs> dude. She is the smartest motherfucker I've ever spoken to. She used to engineer for Prince when she was very very young. Dang. And you know, so she was like his, Go like to. his person, yeah. and uh, she built gear for him too. And then, at the age of forty-four, she decided to go to college, <laughs> became <laughs> became a neuroscientist. Jesus! And so now she's a neuroscientist slash professor at Berkeley College of Music, where I believe that she teaches like audio engineering, but she also. I'm not entirely sure exactly what she does, but she's an actual neuroscientist and crazy. has done all kinds of crazy research about the brain and music. and Really cool. Yeah, you should listen to that one. And talking to her... I'm probably going to listen to all of them. So, But that one in specific, if yeah, you want to okay. just hear a genius talk. Yeah. Talking to her was like trying to run after a Ferrari. <laughs> I really like the one with Mike as well from the, the Doom soundtrack and stuff like that. Oh, or Mick. 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 Mick Gordon. Yeah, he's crazy. He that was so I'm tr- crazy. I'm he, trying to bring him back. I I talked to him and uh, like back in 2016, I think, 
and he said that he had used my mixes as reference for the original Doom soundtrack. God, that's awesome. That was crazy to hear. What a compliment. Like, Jesus Christ, like, are you serious? So that's just nuts. Uh, so I really like what he does, uh, and uh, he's a great guy. It seemed like I'd love to meet him. Man, his his episode was one of my favorites. Yeah. I, I am trying to book him to bring him back. I, I loved talking to him. Man, that must feel awesome yeah, to get crazy. a compliment like that. Especially back back then, I was literally... I, like, the album he was talking about was the Born of Sirens one, and I mixed that in, like, Boy Bedroom, what's it called? Like, the, mm -hmm. where I grew yeah, up. Your childhood bedroom. Essen yeah, essentially. And that was, like, no calibrated monitors or no, no nothing. Like, mm -hmm. that was just... Yeah, it's a weird. It's a weird thing. W was it kind of out of the blue, uh, in a mix? way? Yeah, just to. Get I it. hit him up because I wanted to mix Doom. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, but uh, I was naive uh, asking him for that because I, I didn't realize the time constraints and, and the way he worked. That that's like having someone else mix that is probably impossible to yeah. have happen. So that was it, and uh, but he he uh, so he just said, "Oh, you're that guy." So I referenced your mix uh, from Born of Osiris, and, I, and that was yeah, pretty nuts. You know how we were talking earlier about how you shouldn't take the good praise too seriously. Hmm. Also, you know, if you're gonna ignore the bad, you gotta ignore the good too. Yeah. However, I've always found that when I would get compliments like that from someone I really respect. Yeah. It would help me. It would help me on my mission. Like I remember, Will Putney hit me up once in like 2013 yeah. about the Contortionist album or something. Yeah, uh, which I I don't think sounds good anymore. But at the time, is it the one with Vessel, the song Vessel? Man, I don't remember. You don't the song remember names. Okay. <laughs> it's it's the one that's very dreamy. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's not with their current singer. Okay. Jonathan, the singer. Okay. Intrinsic. Intrinsic. Okay. Both Misha and Will hit me up to compliment me on it. That's cool. And it felt great, man, because I really looked up to those guys. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. A lot of people wanted it to be heavy. Yeah, like, of course. That's always the case. Yeah. If you were, you were heavy once, and you all of a sudden go uh, soft, I guess, and uh, people will ha hate you. Yeah, I mean, course. it wasn't soft, but it was... No, but yeah, softer. But softer. Yeah. yeah. But it's still, getting that sort of like affirmation, did it help you at all, or was it just like, oh, that's cool? Yeah, it's more like, oh, that's cool, because back then, I w I'm really, really bad at, at, first of all, remembering stuff like that, and kind of telling people about that. Like, I, I, I've never used stuff like that as a way of advertising myself, like, look at me, because that's kind of a Swedish thing. Uh, you don't really do that. Uh, mm -hmm. It's called jantelag, and it's, kind of, it's a law, like a law. It's not a real law, but it's just, you shouldn't think you're um, the best at something, or you shouldn't think you're the shit. So you kind of back off in that mindset a bit, which could I, be negative. I kind of see how it can help you from developing too big of a head. Yeah. But I just mean more like if you're ever feeling like unconfident or something, getting praise from someone that you look up to can be like, wait a second, maybe I'm not. I think I've been uh, I've been quite confident from the get go. That's uh, great. So so uh, with my my parents being supportive and uh, I get positive feedback a lot. So mm -hmm. that always helps and I try not to kind of 
go too deep in that hole and just getting praise all the time and just be oh thank you I, I don't want to do that just do the work yeah just do the work definitely yeah, makes sense so when Born of Osiris came about yeah. how did that come about it's a great story <laughs> I want to hear it it's really cool um, I was in LA uh, with my girlfriend at the time and uh, we were driving we were going to do like the highway highway 1 and stuff like that drive from mm-hmm. LA to San Francisco and do it's the It's a great drive. Do the not if you're uh, mixing uh, a song in the car and you're super like what's it called? <laughs> not you get the nausea from not driving. Not if you're mixing a song in the car could have just been the whole sentence. Yeah, yeah, but uh, not only that but you I get motion get sickness too. Super motion yeah. sick like extremely we had to stop and I almost puked and stuff. Uh, we were talking about mixing a song yeah, in the car. So That's I just, already crazy yeah, to begin with. It was hard. I, we were in the car and I saw Lee post like, who like we were looking for mixers, blah blah blah. And I knew he's added me, so, so because he liked HLB, so I knew that already. Mm-hmm. And I just commented, uh, hit me up. That's it, kind of. And uh, or I kind of wrote him <laughs> like misspelled stuff like you should send me uh, your files, haha, whatever. And he did. I was like, hold on and. So, like 10 minutes time or, or 15 minutes, I had the link. So I was like, oh shit. Uh, in the car. Yeah, in the car. <laughs> and I had like my gaming laptop and my Bowers and Wilkins in-ears, uh, which is a kind of fancy in-ear monitor, but, but it wasn't like, it's, it's not, not something you'll mix on, but I mixed on it back then. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I just started mixing in the car and we stopped at kind of a different Starbucks to get Wi-Fi for me to send out revisions. Uh, for the mix, <laughs> which it was pretty fun, <laughs> and so and I stay, stayed up all night and stuff uh, because of the jet lag and also because I had to continue mixing and stuff like that. So that's and there was like huge names involved, like Nolly, mm-hmm. uh, Adam from uh, what's it called? Oh, Adam D. Yeah, he was involved, and, and a bunch of other guys. And I was this nobody. I didn't have a studio barely. I was just living at home, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was such a crazy experience, and uh, I got the job, and that was insane. That also propelled my career a lot. Did you know that those other guys were in the running? I did. I asked afterwards. Oh, okay. So not while you were. No, do- not while while I was doing it. Would that have uh, fucked with your head at all? Probably not. That's great, man. Can we talk about your confidence a little bit? <laughs> okay, sure. Well, no. You know why? Not because I think it's a bad thing. I think it's a great thing I, because. People hit me up for advice all the time, whether not just the students, like I get hit up by lots of people for help with moving forward on projects. And I've just noticed a lot of people don't have confidence and they're easily scared of things and they, they're always waiting for like a perfect situation and um, they're just scared and yeah. they feel like they're not good enough or they feel like, they get something called imposter syndrome yeah. where they don't feel like they're worthy of of something. I can get that though, but I get it more like I'm making a living off of mixing metal. No, that's not possible. That can't happen. Sometimes mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just thinking like it, it's not possible. Sometimes some guy is going to knock on my door and tell me that, no, you have to pay this, so you have to get a normal job like or something like that. That's kind of my thought about mm-hmm. it. Like, uh, this can't be real. Like uh, some, some, like something will happen that will make me have to get a normal job. Yeah, I, I feel that way too. Yeah, <laughs> like something. The like feeling like never everyone goes else, away. Li- literally, everyone else has to do a normal normal job. 
like so it feels kind of strange that way and you kind of don't believe it yeah but i know a lot of other people who had they had found out that those guys were in the running mm. they may not have even tried oh you know because no, I, yeah that's yeah like you said that's the confidence um, yeah that comes from like being the music teacher's darling from day one you know mm -hmm. in in like when i was a small kid all my early music teachers were like mind-blown it seemed like and i got i mean i probably back then were, was a bit of an asshole about it because i just thought i was the best you know back then i had to work on that when i started and when i got older and started i don't know it's called uh, gymnasium it's called when you go to the gymnasium in swedish but i don't know what it's called maybe high school i think high school called, yeah so when i started high school i was still an asshole about that stuff you had to learn some humility i had to learn that and i had to learn how to get along with other musicians that weren't as skilled as i guess mm -hmm. and i had so that was a huge thing and and the teachers told me like they hated me in the beginning. Like I was good at what I, at what I was doing, but I kind of became like a substitute teacher, which kind of was bullshit still, I think. But that didn't help my douchebag situation, really. Like years later, uh, when I was graduating and stuff like that, they told me I, I had gotten a lot better at that. But uh, I was certainly bad. I was certainly not a nice guy back then. You seem perfectly nice now. Yeah, I, but I've worked on it a lot, so. So, and also, I've been humble, of course, of all the talent that uh, internet and YouTube brings. And I was know, like, oh shit, I'm not the best. <laughs> yeah, once it's it's not easy, but it's one thing to be the best person in your school. But yeah. then once you're in the world, yeah. you're up against people who were also the best in their school and yeah. more. The yeah. best, you're talking about people that are now the best in the world mm -hmm. at this kind of stuff. But okay, so here, what I'm curious about is what does it feel like if you could describe it when a job like that comes up like you just said even if you had known that these guys were in the running mm. and you would have gone for it anyways can you describe what that would feel like or what that feeling is the reason i'm saying that is because if people who get this imposter syndrome are listening oh. maybe they can listen to how you felt about it or like how you held yourself physically and like try to like take that on themselves next time wow this is a lot of, this is a lot of pressure <laughs> answering yeah, stuff. it could be something as simple like i just said fuck it that's what i tell people I, I, I probably thought like this is my chance uh and i will crush this and uh, i'm familiar with their music and the files i get are great i can do this i i, I can only do it the way I want it to sound, and they'll just have to decide if that's the sound they want or not. Mm -hmm. So I can only do it my way, uh, and if they don't want it, fine. Then that has to be the way it goes, you know. The worst that could happen in your mind was they didn't take it. Yeah. And that clearly you didn't seem too emotionally concerned. I mean, that, that would suck, of course, but I can only do my best. Yeah. Well, see here, the thing is a lot of people, I think, will think about the worst case, like they don't take it, and then they'll amplify it to this huge proportion yeah. where it doesn't need to be that. It can be something as simple like, yeah, it's disappointing, but isn't it awesome that the opportunity of even course, came like up? Of course, like they chose you, like they, they, they let you do it, which is a huge thing. Yeah. That's how I always took these but things. But I've, I've gotten to mix uh, bigger bands as well, which I didn't get. Mm -hmm. Make them suffer is an example. Mm -hmm. I got to mix them 
but that didn't go anywhere and those guys are huge so that didn't go anywhere and uh, of course I was bummed about it but what can you do I, I just kept on going you know yeah more like, opportunities will arise if a good one arises probably there's probably more people that think the way they think think as well that's how I always looked at it was if I'm even being considered for something that right there is the win. Yeah. The getting the actual job is a bonus. Of course. So you're on their radar. That's the, good. Yeah. Exactly. So the worst that could happen would be that they choose somebody else. Yeah. But I'm on the radar. Yeah. Like when you did do the that test mix, the first, the Born of Osiris. Did it even cross your mind they might not take it, or uh, were you just like I'm going to do this? I don't know really. I just thought I was more stoked. Like these files are great. I this mix is really heavy. I'm happy about this. This mm -hmm. sounds good. That's that's what I'm happy about. So I'm happy about the work I did, regardless of them taking it or not. Mm -hmm. So because I got to do my version of Born of Cyrus, you know. Got it. So you had found a way, or not found a way, but you enjoyed the process. Yeah, it's like my love for mixing kind of yeah. takes over. I'd say that's what I was hoping to hear from you. Like. Not what you just said, but I was just hoping to hear something along whatever lines felt honest to you that makes sense. So if the love for mixing is what took over, hmm. there's no real room for fear. In no, that. not for me. No, not for not for me at least. Yeah, man, I've been talking about that with some people lately. That the one of the most important things when really when doing anything like this, or you want to be an entrepreneur, is or musician, whatever, is finding a way to love the process, because if you don't, then these issues like, are they going to take it? Are they not going to yeah. take it? They're going to become way bigger, and then that imposter they should, syndrome. They should be smaller, because like yeah. the hours you should, the hours you should have spent on mixing should be a World Trade Center, and mm -hmm. you're not getting that job should be a small house, because yeah. you spent that time that they, you got on their radar and you got good so that they knew who you are, were, which is great. And if you're not getting the job, that's too bad, but you got to try and you will probably get to try in the future as well. Yeah, because if you're on the radar, at, what it means is that they consider you to be at a certain skill level. Yeah. So they're only gonna try people who they believe to be at a certain skill level. Mm. Then the decision becomes a combination of politics and personal choice. Yeah. Like personal taste. So, you know, if they get five mixes, they're all going to be good. Mm. Probably. They're all probably going to be pretty damn good. I wish good. I could hear them. I'm sure they're all good. Mm. But there's something about the one that gets picked that either the manager says, this is the best political move, or the band says, I like this one the best, or some combination therein. I think uh, Lee or someone over there probably stuck up for me, uh, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, because since I, I was a nobody back then, me getting that job compared to Adam D or Nolly is mm -hmm. kind of quite small, right? So yeah. some of them must have stuck up for me, which of course I'm super thankful for. That has to have happened, right? Yeah, absolutely. But the point still being that just the fact that you were in that situation yeah. is the win. Yeah. And I don't know, I encourage people who are afraid to move forward with things to find a way to love what it is that they're doing so that whatever voice it is in their head that's telling them they don't belong mm. or it might not work, 
It's definitely not going to work if you don't do it. Yeah, of course. You have to do it. Yeah. yeah. You have to make it sound the way you want to mm -hmm. and uh, kind of trust that. So after Born of Osiris, did that kind of change things for you? Yeah. And uh, also like the HLB was the first milestone, then probably uh, Born of Osiris. And after that, I got like... I got continued continued work, I'd say, mm -hmm. so I could start living on it more or less. Yeah, yeah. So that definitely helped me out. So it's interesting because some people have like the one project that turns everything around, and then other people say that they have that one project that they think is going to turn everything around, yeah. and then it takes ten more. Yeah. So you never know. You, you just never have to know. Keep, you just have to keep going. Yeah, you should do it for the love and the other stuff comes along if you're good or if, if you spend the amount of time you have to. How many hours a day do you normally put in? Nowadays it's not as much as before because before I experimented a lot more. Uh, I tried everything and I, I always had new references I wanted to top, you know. Mm -hmm. So I got super obsessed and I could do like 12 hour days and stuff like that and not eat. But nowadays oh, it's way less like, I mean, maybe four or five hours a day for that stuff. And then your ears are... No, my ears are fine. It's just like, I'm a fast mixer, so the most time I spend on it is always like waiting for re revisions from ah, the guys. okay, got it. Yeah, so that's the time that I'm waiting for other bands, I'd say. Man, do you ever put like a time limit on that or just whenever they get to it? I don't put a time limit on it. No, I should, I should probably do that though. I think... It's it's hard though because if you're dealing with a signed band, yeah, they're on tour. You can't sure. you can't do that. But I feel like with certain clients, like locals or whatever, yeah. it's probably a good idea. Yeah. But some bands, you just can't. I I just know some people who would be like, you have 48 hours. If I don't get notes back in 48 hours, I'm going to consider this approved. Ooh, damn. That's harsh. Yeah, that's harsh. Yeah, I've never done that. Because it takes a lot, it takes a long time to listen to stuff and take it all in. It takes a long time. Yeah, I think that that was their written policy, but they didn't always enforce it. Yeah. So they had that policy just because some people are just being lazy. Yeah. And they try to keep on a schedule, but obviously if they're working with like legit bands that are on tour or whatever, yeah. they're not gonna, not yeah. gonna do that. For sure. I would hope not. Let's let's get to some questions from uh, All right. from listeners because we've got a few. Cool. Steve Gordon, what was your first baritone six string guitar? He's got a few questions, so let's ask one at a time. Okay, so we got one for HLB that that was a righty. Like I didn't play, I played drums back then, and we got a kind of a deal for a Australian builder, uh, Ethereal Guitars. So we got one. That was 28 inch scale and uh, it had a aft, bare knuckle aftermath and was built with fancy uh, fancy Australian wood types. I don't mm -hmm. really know, but uh, so that's the first one we got. And I tracked the self-titled with that. All right. Did you always use a baritone six string with the tuning E-B-E-A-A-B-A -A 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 for your music? No, I used, I think we started in like A just regular drop A. Then we went to drop G, I think, and we added the dissonant notes. We we do like um, the two thinner strings are like, it's called a half, I don't know what it's called, it's like a half note between them. 
-hmm. So you, instead of doing that big stretch for doing the dissonant chords, we just do the one uh, one grip on the same fret. So it's a kind of a strange tuning, but we had a lot of riffs that were that were utilizing the dissonant mm -hmm. screechy things. So it was way easier to do it that way. But we do like we did like seven strings on that EP. Then we got the ethereal guitar. We went down. I think we went down to F first. So that tuning, but a, a half step up. Then we went went down to E for some reason. I don't really know why the, the reasons why, but we went to E and I kind of stuck on on E because the rest I could pitch. Uh, I realized so I don't really have to go lower or stuff like that. So that's where we're at now. Makes sense. So Nolan Baladon is wondering, hey Buster, I know you use a lot of MIDI bass in your production. How do you convince your clients to go this way? Uh, I get a lot of low-tuned stuff from cl from clients, and not all of them have Dingwall basses, which is for me the only option for that low uh, mm -hmm. for the low tunings. Well, what is it about Dingwall basses? It's the scaling. So they're just constructed for this. Yeah, they have the long neck. The they have the 37-inch scale for the, the thickest string, and I sampled three of them, and I sell those on the Impact Studios, uh, and I use them a lot uh, myself because I just track them a special way, how I play, and uh, they go extremely, extremely low, like so you can barely hear the note. But bands who come to me, they have listened to Bill Jarda and HLB, which are tuned super low, so they mm -hmm. want the same thing. So that's just what I tell them. I mean, if they have great track bass, fine, I'll use that for sure. And I, I think track bass always sound better. But like I said, th they don't have they don't have the uh, the, the basses that can take that low tuning. All right, let's see here. Well, there are lots of people are asking about your approach to making guitar tones, and I will just say that we did a Q and A yesterday. That's available for Nail the Mix subscribers. It's in Buster's uh, Humanity's Last Breath session. Uh, so if you're a subscriber for February 2020, we talk about that quite a bit. And also, we are making a fast track all about Buster's guitar methods and detune guitar methods. So uh, we'll leave that kind of out of this because it's going to be covered in detail for you guys. We already talked about MIDI bass, but this this question kind of kind of piggybacks off of the last one. Yeah. So Will Duff, what's your mindset when deciding whether you're going to utilize a programmed instrument in your production over tracking the real instrument, and how do you manage the band relationship, i.e., the drummer or bass player maybe doesn't play on the album at all? So we already talked about bass. Yeah, but yeah, so but I I I'm I will say this like tra tracked stuff, real stuff is always better, but there's rare occasions that I get it, but Mostly, they don't know how to tune drums. They don't know how to mic the the like room mics or whatever. They don't know how to set it up properly to get the sound they want. Not even not even what I want, but I know they want a certain sound. But they don't really know how to get it. So the files I get, I get MIDI drums very often, and that's never a problem. It's always like here's the files: MIDI drums, MIDI bass. That's it. And that's usually the case, and mm -hmm. I get and I've learned how to make that work for me. And uh, I offer tracking. I offer uh, like I can track your guitar and your bass. 
I offer that I offer that as a service. So if they want that, I can do that as well. But yeah. but most times it's just a guitarist that's making riffs, and I find a singer and a drummer and stuff like that. But he makes the music, and he know he and he just sends me the files, and I have to go through them. Yeah. So you're just it's like a constraint of the situation yeah. oftentimes. Yeah. There's no money in music, so there's no money to spend on recordings. Yeah, that makes sense. In certain situations, you just got to do, you got to make the most out of what you have to work with. Yeah. I posted this the other day that a professional mixer is a professional problem solver. I posted that as a poll, and I've always believed that, and yeah. producer too, but basically an audio engineer is a professional problem solver. Yeah. You're solving the problems of budget, you're solving the problems of time, you're solving the problems of tuning, the problems of weird arrangements, like all all of it. Yeah. You just have to solve the problems somehow. And having a limited budget comes with its own set of problems. Yeah. Like not having the money to go record drums. Also some genres kind of call for samples and stuff like that. Yeah, I totally. I, grew, I grew up on Morbid Angel. And if anyone has listened to Morbid Angel, they use the most cheap-ass trigger system for the for their <laughs> stuff. It's like one shots, and it just sounds like <laughs> like that's, And I'm used to that, and I always have liked that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I always thought it sounded super extreme. It sounded like a machine gun, and it really fits with the riffs. And the, the drums are so clear and so clicky, and I really love that because I grew up on death metal. So I'm all about that stuff, but I also like the natural tones, and those go with certain types of music, and the trigger sounds goes with a certain type of music. So you have to just make it work and um, kind of pick the method for the, the genre. So speaking of, here's a question on that topic from Thomas V. Rodriguez. How do you go about choosing the right drum samples for an album that you're mixing? Yeah, I, I tend to go for like, if you he wants like super straight up answer, I, I'd say like, I go for tune track for the more triggered sounding stuff, uh, and I go for GGD for the less triggered sounding stuff, for the more mm -hmm. natural sounding stuff. Makes sense. Pretty easy answer. And from there, it's just what you like. Yeah. Right? And I can blend, I blend, like for, yeah, I blend uh, both of them. It's just what I feel like and what I think sounds the best for the song. You know, one thing that I think people get wrong when choosing samples is trying to make something they don't like work. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, there's... We use this. I don't know why we do it, but we use this. Yeah. And we'll have to make it work. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> well, you have like 10,000 other options. Yeah. Why don't you find one that works exactly. first, yeah. then mold it? Yeah. I've never understood that. I've it's been... weird. It's But it, it's like we talked about. Some people are not thinking all the way, like, like really going all the way on how to get the end result. They're just going half the way in their brain. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like a mixer that is a guitarist and he gets shitty DIs. And it's really important for him to get the mix to sound good. He's not thinking about retracking. Why isn't he? Why isn't he thinking about retracking? He can't retract, he's a guitarist. Just do it, it will sound better. But maybe he just thinks, this is the files I get, I have to make them work, I have to mix them. No, you can just retrack them. Yep. If it's really important to you to get this to sound great, just retrack it. It's, Go all the way, you know. Man, sometimes you have to like fight. I don't know if you have to do this. Sometimes I have to fight my own brain to push past my own uh, barriers. Because yeah. that what you just said, this guitar is not good enough. I could just retrack it. That type of idea yeah. 
is so obvious. The answer is so obvious. Or But, like a choir. Like uh, I've done shit like this. I've heard a song, and I'm like, this needs a choir or this needs a harmony. Oh, I can sing. I'll just track it. I'll just track it myself and yeah. put it in there, and. It worked fine, and the band was like, "This is really cool. What VST is this?" I'm like, "No, it's me singing." Mm -hmm. And you just felt like it needed it, so yeah. you did it. Yeah, it's like the Kane Cherko. It's Kane Cherko who uh, kind of uh, inspired me because he sings all the harmonies on his yeah. stuff for other bands, which is really cool. So don't be afraid to do something if you feel like it's needed, or to fix something if you feel like it's needed. Man, I I love that you're saying that. I just think that our brain is uh, designed in a weird way to kind of just accept what it's given. Yeah. I don't know why. Survival just, or survive. whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure where it comes from. Yeah. Maybe someone listening knows, but like to just accept what you're given and just be like, these are the constraints. Yeah. Some of the constraints are real though, right? Like budget, yeah. that's usually real, but even that can change. But there's no drummer that real yeah there's some of these are real yes or like the thing like you said with with Viljarda, um the guy's hands yeah that's a real constraint it is however not all of these constraints are real no some of them uh you really can just fucking redo yeah for sure how do you decide yeah the, it, the difference between a real I, i think it's if it's really necessary i can do those i I think those are extreme cases, like me tracking vocals or me re-tracking guitars. But you really have to consider like if it's realistic and if it's really necessary. And if it is, just do it. Mm -hmm. If you're lucky, you can just ask the band, like, if I retract these, can I get an extra hundred bucks or whatever? Because I really think this will improve the mix. Or you just send the retract me and you say, yeah. this is me retracking your, your guys' guitars and this is with your guitars and they have to decide which mm -hmm. pick which and if you pick this one I, I would like to get paid for the work I did yeah yeah or maybe do one section yeah just one section yeah for sure for sure that way yeah you don't have to do the entire thing for sure yeah <laughs> how, how have you done that have you sent the A and B yeah how often have they been like no just go with ours not often yeah but hey at least give them the choice yeah yeah then it's their choice Luke Wilson's wondering, how do you determine how many vocal tracks a session will need? And is it a more effective way of avoiding automation later in the session? Let me just explain something real quick from what I've seen in your sessions. You have a different track for type of vocal. Yeah. So there will be like any musical part that's treated kind of differently gets its own track. Yeah. Rather than being on the same track and then just I tried later. to do that at least. I mean, I I tried to do that with the new HLB, the unreleased thing. I had like high high one, high dub, and mid and low and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But I just realized he, his voice can be adapted to one way of processing it, and it mm -hmm. sounds fine. But some guys have such drastic differences on their voices, so they have to have a separate track to have yeah. different processing. Because if he does a low and it has like a bunch of 400 and 300 hertz and he does a super high uh, super high scream and it has not none of that so you have to process it differently to get a cohesive sound with both mm -hmm. and uh, also different buzzes if you want want if you want the vocals to get louder when there's more takes versus uh, a compressor bringing the volume down uh, when there's more takes than before There's, mm -hmm. That's also a thing to consider. If you want it louder, you should have a separate bus. If you don't want it louder when 
when everything is playing at once, you should have it all sent to a compressor or whatever. Yeah, makes sense. Another question from Will Duff. What was your progression path to becoming a professional producer slash mixer? And what tips would you give us guys trying to follow in your footsteps? We already talked about your path. Yeah. But uh, any tips for people trying to follow in your footsteps? I mean, the best way now, I'd say, but I mean, besides spending a lot of hours on learning and referencing what you think is, are the best mixes and your objective has to be to crush the mixes you really love and make it better. Uh, if that's not a, your objective, you're, make, you're doing it wrong, I think. Man, that's so interesting that you say that because because of Nail the Mix, we are seeing every single month a lot of people submitting mixes of shit that was already released. Yeah. And I don't really think too many people are thinking that they're going to crush that mix. They should. And it's they shouldn't say it out loud, just so that... <laughs> don't type it, <laughs> just so that nobody thinks you're an asshole yeah, yeah, or yeah. delusional. But yeah, because if you're like, I'm going to crush TLA's mix. It's oh, no, like, no. It's like, bro, you're delusional. <laughs> yeah, but it's, but it's your taste. Yes. You, you, will have, you will have different tastes than, than Absolutely. him. Absolutely. So based on that, you can crush it, but according to yourself. Yeah. And you should be about making your own sound. Absolutely. So... I totally agree with you that, again, I'll say it, just don't type this so that people don't think you're crazy. But in your heart of hearts, you, in your own mind, should be trying to crush the other person's mix. Yeah. Um, and if you feel like there's no way you can ever do it, that's the type of thinking that, uh, that you should try to get rid of. Even if you're de looking at a Will Putney mix and it's fucking amazing. That's great. Mm. Maybe it's a huge challenge, but you should still go into it trying to win that battle. Yeah. You might not achieve, you might not win yeah. that battle. At first, if you're first starting out, you most definitely aren't going to win that battle right away. But the only way to really, really get great at it, in my opinion, is to have huge goals like that and then go for them. Yeah. Like every single time I would do a mix when I was mixing, I wanted it to be my best mix ever. And I would put up references by people like Putney or That's Jay, Jay Rustin. That's all I've been Yeah, doing. Jay Rustin or whoever and be like, at least try, at least I'm going to try to get better than them. Didn't really work. But I got better and better and better. There were a few times where I was starting to approach that level because I was zeroing in on on beating a standard. You'll focus on different stuff as well because your hearing is not developed. So you, so you, you're, you yeah. might not focus on his hi-hat sound. You might focus on the drums are have more attack. Then you find a way to get your drums to have more attack. Then after that, you'll notice that his bass is deeper, uh, and you, you'll mm -hmm. find a way to make that happen. And you, as your ear progresses, you'll hear different stuff. Because if you're making some something happen, and you're listening, and you're like, this still sounds better. Why? Why is it sounding better? And your ear, you, you will listen so closely and find out what are the things that you think are better. And you'll 
attack those specifically in the next mix or whatever. And until you think your mix is better or at least as good. Yeah, on par. Yeah, on par. Yeah. That's a really, really good way to put it because it's true. I think we've had a lot of people who submit mixes to nail the mix and they didn't get picked for the top 20 or whatever, and they don't understand. They, they, they're they convinced that their mix is fucking awesome, then yeah. I hear it, and it's not awesome yeah. at all. It's not even close. It's usually the ones that are like, that uh, post really angry comments, their mixes are far from awesome. And I'm trying to think, what is it that leads them to believe this? Because I want to help them. That's what we're here for. Yeah. I know some people like want to attack those people, but for me, it's like I'm not here to attack these people. If they actually think that their mix was that great, there's a few things going on. First of all, the room could be all fucked up, yeah. and they don't even know what they're hearing. Yeah. But I think deeper than that is what you said. When you're first learning, your hearing's not that developed, so you're focusing. focusing. On, yeah, yeah, so maybe, yeah, so maybe it's the first time they got a punchy kick drum, and so and that, they hear their kick drum is punchier than yeah. the mix, and it's like then mine's better. Yeah, exactly, because that's what they're focused on. Yeah, but they're not hearing everything. Of course, that's that's it's a combination of a shitty environment with that focus so yeah man too i remember the first time that i got a snare bomb yeah like because it took me a long time to figure out how to do a good one yeah before there were like a million videos on how to do them yeah um and i got one and i was like fuck yeah <laughs> finally yeah then i didn't listen to it for a few days went back and my mix still wasn't as good as uh, whoever i was referencing but i but i got the snare bomb down and then, yeah, then it was like, wait a second, my cymbals are interfering with my guitars. Yeah. We'll deal with that next. Yeah, and you learn as you go, for sure. Yeah, that has to be those two things that may, probably made him think that his mix was better than it actually was, was. So, who knows? Listening environment, man, how important do you think it is? Extremely. Like, since, yeah, I, don't, I, I have no idea how I managed to make mixes for big bands without having calibrated systems like that's mind-blowing to me how i like because if you put a speaker in a room it'll sound like another speaker in another room it's sound like a different speaker you have to have some like it has to be flat some like somehow or at least somewhat flat to reference correctly but at the same time if you have a room that you've been in all your life and it has uh, no calibration or anything and you're listening to your favorite mixes and they sound great then you probably can use that room to do your own mixes because if you reference your favorite mixes and they they sound great in those speakers your mix is going to sound great in, in those speakers as well if it's yeah. a great mix yeah so really it just comes down to knowing what you're working with yeah and I think the perfect example of someone who proves that yeah. is Joey. Just Joey Sturgis is that yeah. he never worked in a treated room and he used $700 monitors. Yeah. They're pretty good monitors, but they're not like, he used the A7Xs? Yeah, yeah. Or his AX7s? I always confuse, I always confuse it with a Venge 7 fold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, same. <laughs> but I mean, I have those now and I, I used to have like super nice Channel X and everything, but since I don't mix, I don't need those. But I have I have those atoms. They're fine, but they're by no means like 
like barefoot or But I don't think expensive is better. When I bought my Amphions, I really realized that like these aren't making me mix better. What is making me mix better is sonar works and the ref and like reference Mm -hmm. and the the calibration. That's what's making me mix better. It's not like these monitors are like when you get over a specific price, I think it's kind of like a luxury item. Uh, it's nice to have, I but agree. you really don't need it at all. I agree, but in Joey's case, he didn't have sonar works either. No, he had a totally. I had room. Mackies yeah. for like three hundred dollars. Uh, yeah, but you, mixed, but you knew them. Yeah, but I mixed a bunch of stuff. On yeah, those. that's my point. Is like if you know what you're listening to, that's what that's really what matters. And sonar works is great because it helps make sure that you actually are hearing what you think you're hearing. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think that despite a bad room and despite cheap speakers, if you know what you're hearing, you can win. Yeah. And I've known several people who have proven that. Yeah. Obviously, though, a perfectly treated room with like sick-ass speakers that you know, that, that being the key. A room could be, you could be in a million-dollar room with like $20,000 of Amphions, but if you don't know what you're hearing... That doesn't really help too much either. Correct. So knowing what you're hearing is the actual thing that really matters in the end, regardless. I think that's why some people can mix in headphones, which blows my mind. Which I do. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, because you know what you're hearing. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've started in in in-ears, actually, like uh, in-ear, not monitors, but in-ear headphones, I'd say. Mm -hmm. That's what I started in, uh, because I feel I really get up and close to the sound, and I really hear all all the details since I'm blocking out everything else outside. So that's what I'm used to. Whatever works, man. Yeah. Well, Buster, thank you for doing the podcast. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah, it's been a pleasure having you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at Levy URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.